Good morning, church. Please turn back with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. We'll pick up there in the narrative this morning. Years ago, there was a father trying to get some work done at home. So he sent out his kids to play in the yard while he did so. After a short time, he heard a commotion coming from outside. The kids had started fighting and shouting at one another. So the dad went out, you know, as dads do, and was hollering out the back door, Hey, what's going on? Y'all, y'all cut it out. And the kids responded, Oh, it's okay, Dad. We're just playing church. Now, I am happy to report that uh, this type of thing is not necessarily uh, uh, characteristic of Midtown Baptist Church. In fact, we have enjoyed God's grace for some time, and um, it has not at all been the case that uh, fighting and quarreling has characterized Midtown, Midtown Baptist Church. But that's not the case for many churches. That's not the case for many churches across the globe, down through the ages. And unless the church is intentional about cultivating unity, it can find itself easily ensnared in conflict and distracted from the purposes that God has given to it in the Scriptures. The purpose of our text this morning is to help ward off such a fate for churches. Chapter 5 is really a a parenthetical chapter in the narrative of Nehemiah. It's pausing the narrative concerning tell a story about a conflict going on in Jerusalem at that time. And the main idea that we're to take away from the passage is this. Division among God's people distracts from the progress of of God's purposes. Division among God's people distracts from the progress of God's purposes. And this is seen by way of three movements in the text. The first thing that we see in the text is the cry of the oppressed. The second thing we observe in the text is the correction of the oppressors. And third, we note the compassion of their leader. You see the cry, the correction, and compassion. These movements of the text are going to serve as our uh, sermon points this morning. We have much to see from the text this morning, so let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask Him for His blessing on our time, and we'll dive in. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. I echo my brother's prayer a moment ago. We thank You for the, the gracious ministry, the gracious um, instruction, that it is that you have given to us in your word. Lord, we pray now that you would work these realities in us, God, that, that you would work unity in our church, that you would ward off conflict in our church as we consider what your word reveals to us. Lord, we, we do pray that you would come now and through the ministry of your word that you would admonish the idle, that you would encourage the faint-hearted, and Lord, that you would work among us to grow us more into the image of your Son, Jesus. And we ask it in His name. Amen. Well, the chapter begins in verse 1, saying, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brothers. 
So we understand that while we read in Nehemiah 4 about oppression that comes from outside of Jerusalem and produce challenges within Jerusalem, this chapter focuses on oppression that is occurring specifically within the Jewish people. The, the greatness of the oppression is going to be fleshed out in the following verses, but it's underscored actually in the very first verse with reference to the Jewish wives. The women in this culture would normally not have engaged in such a, a public complaint. But the horror of the situation overwhelmed these women's ability to, to hold their silence. So then what was this so horrible situation? Well, verse 2 tells us of a request that's brought forth because of two main complaints that follow. The complaints tell the story of what the situation in Jerusalem was. At first, we understand that the people were asking Nehemiah for grain. And they were asking him for grain simply so that they could survive. Verse 2 reads, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Certain Jews had, had found themselves in, in a state of poverty. And not just poverty that prevents them from, from, from thriving. Here we read of a poverty that threatens their very lives. Such that they must look to Nehemiah for relief if they are to keep alive, the text says. So how is it that they came to such a dismal state? In looking to Nehemiah, are they, are they looking for governmental aid because the people had been harmed by outside forces? Sadly, that's not the case. What we find here is, is much worse, in fact, because the cause of their life-threatening poverty came not from a foreign foe, but it came, according to verse 1, from their Jewish brothers. And how so? Well, verse 3 tells us. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And the, the low yield of crop was, was causing them, in verse 4, to have to borrow money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So perpetual property, poverty had become a, a serious issue there in Jerusalem. This famine had occurred, likely in the past, and it had depleted their stores of crops so that they were not able now to keep up with what they needed even to sustain themselves. They didn't have an adequate supply. And so, to get the grain needed to plant new crops, they wound up mortgaging their land and their homes, their vineyards. But that wasn't all that they had to borrow money for, the sowing of a new crop. Taxes were just as certain then as they are now. And the king was not shy about taking his share of the revenue. And he didn't care about their financial crisis. So they had to borrow money to pay their taxes to the king. Now, at this point, you, you might be thinking, well, listen, that, that is sad. I'll give you that. But at the end of the day, you know, Tough luck, guys. It sounds like capitalism to me, right? 
You're free to go in debt if you want to, but don't cry when the debtor comes around wanting his interest and want, wanting payment for the loan that he's given you. That sounds like the way a successful economy works to me. But before you allow your economic theory to inform your understanding of the text, we need to take a closer look here. First, a closer look at the text, and then we need to give some consideration to the broader biblical instructions about such matters. Continuing on, the dark and oppressive nature of the situation becomes readily apparent. Verse 5 says, Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are for forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So the impoverished are, are crying out to Nehemiah out of desperation because things have gotten so bad that though they and their children are fellow members of God's covenant with their fellow Jews. The only way to survive is to sell their children to their fellow Jews. Now, as I said, we need to consider the nature of what's reported in this text here, and we need to consider the broader revelation of Scripture. God makes clear in the book of the law how His people were to engage one another in commerce, even laying out how money was to be lent and how the matter of slavery was to be handled among His people. It might be surprising to modern ears that neither of these practices were altogether forbade in God's law. We don't have time for an exhaustive study of these commands this morning. If you'd like to dive further into that, I'd invite you to read from Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 23. It really is an interesting uh, read. But for the purposes of our study today, what, what should be known is that God made clear that the Jewish people could borrow money. They could even mortgage their land and their homes, as we see them doing here. But they could not charge interest to fellow Jews. Additionally, if someone became poor, they could sell themselves or their children as servants. But as a fellow member of the Mosaic Covenant, that is precisely how they were to be treated, as servants, not as slaves. They could be taken into another's house, yet they were to receive wages as a servant would. They were not to be treated as property like a slave. On both of these accounts, the wealthy among these folks in Jerusalem were sinning against God, and they were sinning against their countrymen as they violated these laws. They were charging exorbitant interest in these loans, and they were buying their kinsmen's children as slaves. When the whole situation is considered, it's really not hard to identify that the rich were engaged in these types of transactions in such a way that was categorized as nothing but sin. But, even if we were to look charitably upon these wealthy members of the society there, 
Let's say we take a charitable perspective and recognize that well, they're newly settled in the land again. And perhaps they weren't thoroughly familiar with each of these specific regulations of God's law. But even if we take that perspective, they were all still guilty of violating the repetitious for refrain throughout God's law, which was, you shall not wrong one another. They were certainly guilty of this, a matter that they were certainly aware of as they lived as God's people in God's land. You shall not wrong one another. Some versions read, you shall not take advantage of or oppress one another. The situation was clearly horrible for a great mass of God's people. It's helpful for just a moment to consider how awful and hopeless a situation would have to be for you to resort to selling your child into slavery. Let's not just read the words on the page, friends. Let's sit in that for a moment and really contemplate what a horrible situation this must have been to actually resort to selling your child into slavery. The circumstances were so terrible. Frankly, I'm not certain I can wrap my head around it. Yet the wealthy in Jerusalem still lent out money at interest. In such a context, in such a scenario, they were still lending out money at interest. Because, you know, that's, that's fair in all. That's the way an economy works. Yes, they were without a doubt taking advantage of their covenant brothers and sisters and the misery that had befallen them. And, and as you read through Leviticus 25, you'll find that the reason that God set out these rules that He did concerning loaning and slavery was to underscore that His people belonged to Him and no one else. Leviticus 25 repeatedly says, For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Therefore, no one was to possess them as property or ensnare them in debt perpetually. They were the Lord's. So we've heard here the rightful outcry of the people against their oppressors. And the natural question is, well, how did Nehemiah respond? Which leads to the second movement of the text where we find the correction of the oppressors. The correction of the oppressors. In the second paragraph, we find three stages, really, of Nehemiah's response to the cry of God's people. If you're a note taker and you like subpoints under your main points, then you can understand the movement of the text here in three subpoints. Nehemiah responds with righteous indignation, he responds with careful contemplation, and he responds with direct confrontation. The righteous indignation is seen from verse 6. Nehemiah tells us there, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And there's a lesson even here, brothers and sisters, that contrary to what some propose, not all anger is sinful. Most anger is sinful because if we're honest, 
Most of our anger comes from an exalted view of ourself and our preferences. But the Bible is clear that anger itself is not sin. This is plain enough in Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 4 to be angry and do not sin. Also in Matthew 21, we find Jesus is angered by the profaning of the temple and proceeds to cleanse it by flipping over tables and driving people out with whips. No, anger itself is not sin. The the difference in righteous indignation is that it typically has to do with offenses against God rather than ourselves. And that's the case here with Nehemiah when he learns of the harsh treatment of these fellow covenant members. Yet his anger is not unbridled. Rather than responding with the first thing that comes to his mind, verse 7 tells us that there's a progression from righteous indignation to careful contemplation. In verse 7, Nehemiah tells us, I took counsel with myself. Meaning, he took the time to weigh out what the appropriate action would be. As it turns out, the appropriate action was direct confrontation with those who had been sinfully oppressing God's people. After taking counsel with himself, Nehemiah says, And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And here we find Nehemiah identifying specifically how the wealthy were sinning against their brothers in this borrowing system that had been imposed. It was this matter of exacting interest which was clearly forbidden in the law of God. It it, it seems that Nehemiah actually here, when he calls this out among them and identifies this element of exacting interest, it seems that he anticipated their immediate understanding and repentance of their sin. But apparently it did not work out that way. Because in the next sentence, we see a progression. No longer is Nehemiah directly confronting the nobles privately, He goes on to tell us, and I held a great assembly against them. Just as an aside, it's remarkable how consistent this is with the formula that Jesus lays out in Matthew 18 for the New Testament model of church discipline. I mean, I'm not going to make a case for congregationalism from this text, but the Baptistic ecclesiology here is still worthy of note. Nonetheless, to the text, Nehemiah lays out in this great assembly two main charges of enslavement of their fellow Jews in verse 8 and lending money at interest to fellow Jews in verse 10. And it's in this great assembly that Nehemiah spells out not just the specific charges, but the moral indictment against these oppressors. Look at verse 9 with me. It's there that Nehemiah says, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? So, says Nehemiah, the heart of the matter is that these men aren't fearing God. They're not revering Him as holy and submitting to Him and His designs. Just as all sin does, their selfish greed had blinded them to the true rebellious nature of their actions. Their avarice, their their economic prowess had outrun their devotion to God. 
Consequently, they bring reproach upon God and His people from the nations. Nehemiah says that it is walking in the fear of the Lord which will prevent the taunts of the nations. It will keep people from claiming that those folks over there in Judah, they don't have any room to talk about morality. There were to be a people that were set apart from the world, these Jews. They they were to be set apart from the world so that living and thriving under God's law, the world would see and glorify God with them. God gave His law to, to govern them as that which would not only honor Him, but cause them to flourish. The whole in, this whole endeavor of rebuilding the wall around the city was so that they might flourish again in the land that God had given them. Yet through their oppressive schemes, these wealthy nobles were undermining the, the immediate purposes of God to prosper His people. And on a broader, greater level, they were undermining the whole endeavor of what it means to be the corporate people of God. They were undermining this idea of what it means to be called out to live together in holiness for the glory of God as a witness to the nations. And friends, if you're thinking, well, what does this have to do with the New Testament church? I get that this was an ancient story about these people of God living in an ancient world that needed walls around their cities. But I don't really understand that. So what does this really have to do with the New Testament church? Well, we have only to consider the fact that the church exists now for the same reason that the people of God existed in the Old Testament. By definition, the church is the called-out assembly of God's people. And the unity that should have characterized God's people under the Old Covenant, we are called to labor for under the New Covenant. This is what Paul speaks of in Ephesians 4, saying, I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But to what end, you might ask? Well, Paul answers that for us as well, saying, We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body to grow so that it builds itself up in love. As the church, like God's people in Nehemiah 5, we are to pursue unity with one another and sacrificially serve one another so that we might flourish in holy living and thereby become a light to the onlooking world, friends. Paul put it a little bit differently in Ephesians, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, saying, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Yes, church, there is much. 
for us to learn from this scene here in Nehemiah. There is much that's translatable from this Old Testament story to the commands that we receive in the New Testament about being the new covenant people of God. Because if we become sinfully focused on ourselves, instead of on heeding God's command concerning our service to one another, the church will be, not maybe, but the church will be stunted in its fulfillment of God's purposes. We cannot focus on ourselves and our desires. We must be given to God's commands to selflessly serve one another. After setting out the moral indictment against the guilty, Nehemiah went on to call the greedy nobles to repent of the wrong that they had done. And in a clear picture of true repentance, it did not just involve apologizing for their wrongdoing. Verse 11, Nehemiah calls them to return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. It was a call not just to apologize, but to, as best they could, make right what they had done wrong. And by God's grace, in verse 12, we see that that they're won over, and they repent. Nehemiah then, then calls for the priests, so that these men could solidify their commitment by an oath, that they would relent of their ungodly practices. But before he let them go, Nehemiah actually dramatizes the consequences of going back on their word if they continue in their sin. Verse 13, he he shakes out his garment to show that continuing in their sin will result in God shaking them out personally and removing them from His corporate people. The Scriptures are crystal clear, friends. Decidedly living in a manner contrary to God's commands is no small matter. And God, nor His people, can tolerate it. But Nehemiah, you see, in his leadership was not limited to just confronting enemies. In the final movement of the text, we find the compassion of this leader. In the last section of the text, we get a more elongated record of the, the life and leadership of Nehemiah among his fellow Jews. We come to learn that Nehemiah had been appointed governor of Judah, no doubt by King Artaxerxes. But it's not so much that appointment that demands our attention as it is the, the manner in which he fulfilled his leadership role. He records for us in verse 14 that for the length of his leadership, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governors. Like most dignitaries, the, the, the governor had a certain amount of tax they were entitled to levy against the people, to furnish their life and to entertain all of those in their company. And the tax was not insignificant. According to verse 15, the, the former governors who were before me had laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Now it's hard to 
calculate exactly what the impact of that would have been on every person in Judah as there are different classes of people. But nonetheless, what is clear when you study is that no matter the class you were in, this, this would have hurt. It would have been significant. No one would have escaped feeling this tax. So much so that in verse 15, we're told that even the servants of the previous administration had lorded it over the people. It was, a, it was something to arrogantly boast about if you were one of the servants of the governor in days gone by. Yet even though it would have been no surprise to the people, it would have actually been even the expected norm for Nehemiah to levy the tax, Nehemiah did not exercise his right to levy the tax. And he tells us his motive for refraining from charging the tax. He says, I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. Like a good leader, Nehemiah's life is consistent with what he taught. The same thing that he said should motivate the oppressors to obey God is the same thing that motivates his obedience, the fear of the Lord. So he eased the burden of the people of God and did so while fulfilling the work that God gave him to do. Verse 16 reads, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants gathered for the work. But Nehemiah here went even beyond obeying God's command not to take advantage of his kinsmen. He graciously uses his own resources to lavishly bless all that came to sit at his table. Verses 17 and 18. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds. And every ten days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the, the service was too heavy on this people. Not only did Nehemiah lift the burden that had laid on the people, he, out of his own stores, offered an abundant bounty for those that he brought into his company. You know, we've previously observed throughout the narrative of Nehemiah that th this book is not primarily about Nehemiah. What an arrogant act for someone to sit down and record their life and accomplishments that they had made for God's people. No, that's not Nehemiah's heart in writing this memoir. This book is not about Nehemiah. It's clear that Nehemiah was conveying to us the story of his leadership in order to show how God worked in and through his people for his glory, providing for and protecting all of his people as his people that belong to him. And when we acknowledge that, we can see that God here was using Nehemiah as no less than a prefigure of Christ. He was God's provision meant to show the way in the time before Christ came. 
God was showing the people the way to Christ through this compassionate leader who hears the cry of his people in their destitute state and works justice and mercy and reconciliation for them. Nehemiah was not the Savior, but he pointed the way as they waited for their true Savior, Jesus Christ. Just consider the parallels in this passage. Nehemiah acted as a a savior of sorts for the people who had no way of saving themselves. Nehemiah bought back the people of God who had been enslaved in foreign lands, as Christ has bought back the people of God from enslavement to sin and death. Nehemiah brought unity among God's people, as Christ brought unity among God's people. Nehemiah lays down his rights as governors to ease the burden of the people as Christ laid down his rights to take on the burden of his people. Nehemiah, out of his own resources, blessed those who sat at his table as Christ, out of his sovereign grace, calls sinners to receive the richest of blessings in having a seat at his table. Friends, the parallels are too numerous to miss. This is a a clear sign in this post-exilic, pre-Christ age of the necessity and the centrality of the gospel for God's people. The events were instructive for them in their day. In, In all of their turmoil and travail, it was ultimately to teach them about their need, their ultimate need for a Savior who could unite the people of God as one, who could give the people, all of them, new hearts, permanently settling their affections and devotions on God, instead of just persuading them for a time, only for them to fall back into sin, as these Judeans are going to do here in just a few chapters. All this was meant to teach them of their need for the one who could do what really needs to be done, which is to remake the world, ridding it of all sin and oppression. With the commitment that on that last day, He'll wipe away every tear that was shed during the oppression. And the Scriptures say that from that point on, there will be no mourning, no crying, or pain anymore. Yeah, this is what's intended for the Jews to see. And God used Nehemiah greatly to meet the immediate needs there. But Nehemiah could not permanently fix the hearts of those in Jerusalem on the God that they should fear. He couldn't truly bind the hearts of the people of God together in harmony. Yes, This is what the Jews were intended to see here. And the necessity of the gospel is what we are intended to see and savor here, friends. We see that Christ is the answer to all the problems of God's people in every age. We're intended to see that it is Christ alone who's sufficient to bind God's covenant people together to live in harmony He alone is able to write the law of God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of our hearts. His work alone shows us that no matter the 
social status, wealth, or gift set, there is no fundamental difference between any of us. There is no distinction between any of us, that we are all at root sinners, totally incapable of saving ourselves from the bondage of enslavement to sin. He alone is the fountain of God's immeasurable love poured out on us by His grace on the cross, which compels us then to love and bear with our brothers and sisters as we've been made members of a new and better covenant and invited to sit at Christ's table. It's His loving sacrifice that not only binds us together in an eternal unity, but it sets the paradigm of our loving sacrifice for one another. And walking in light of these realities, of what Christ has done for each of us, is what enables us to both experience harmony among ourselves and to continue laboring sacrificially together for the purposes of God among us. And so, church, this morning, let us remember that as Nehemiah worked to deliver the oppressed in Jerusalem and to set those captives free, how much more have we received the ministry of the one anointed to finally and fully proclaim the good news to the poor and to proclaim liberty to the captives? In receiving His redemption, we've all been unified as one in Christ. Let us not spurn that unity that He shed His blood to secure. Friends, let us work together, serving one another for the purposes of holiness and His glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for Your Word. And we do pray now, God, that in contemplating the ministry of Christ, the redemption that we have in Christ, the reconciliation that we have in Christ, that, that we would be encouraged to see the unity that we have in Christ. And that embracing that unity, Lord, that we would be committed to serving one another rather than striving with one another. Protect us, God, as a church from any and all strife and discord that would come among us. We pray, Lord, that you would persevere us in seeking to pursue your purposes and your plans here among us. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.